Hello and welcome to another episode of Professors at Work. I'm Rami Khoury, your host at the American University of Beirut. Every week we talk to a faculty member or a scholar who's doing research in some area that is important to the world. And this week we have a particularly relevant guest, uh, Dr. Hassan Zarakit, who is Associate Professor at the Faculty of Medicine. And he's a professor who studies virology and immunology and pathology and viruses and influenza and all of these issues that are high in the minds of uh, people uh, all over the world and actually also high in the bodies of people all over the world, unfortunately. Uh, and he's been doing research on, on issues that he will tell us about. Uh, Dr. Zaraki, thank you for being with us. Thank you, Rami, for having me. Well, you are the man of the moment, you and your many other colleagues at AUB and around the world who are studying these issues. So uh, tell us, wh how do you focus your research these days? It's been two years now. We've had the, um, the virus and uh, the COVID. Um, are you adjusting your research or are you just taking the research you've already done for many years and learning from it to help deal with uh, the COVID? So explain to us what you're doing and why you why you chose the topics that you choose to research. Well, absolutely, the uh, COVID pandemic uh, kind of shifted a lot of the focus of, of the research that we're doing, because as, as you could imagine, we, we, as a virologist, we are on the front line of trying to respond to this pandemic, and thus we needed to address uh, some of the research gaps and provide tools for uh, this pandemic. So uh, the pandemic definitely changed what we're doing in the lab, to some extent, and uh, it also brought our research to light because, you know, in the past, you know, virologists were uh, working in, in on the back lines and trying to support clinical practices or doing more basic science that's not really um, visible to the public. But with the pandemic, people got to learn more about the work that we do and what it means to be a virologist. Also, it gave us an opportunity to be really able to communicate directly with the public. So we had also to change how we communicate science, uh, making it more uh, visible, more uh, transparent, but more also uh, with more clarity uh, for for the public. Mm -hmm. We'll talk about that uh, in a minute, the, the disseminating your knowledge to the public and to government officials and, and uh, others. But So tell us first, what is it that you're focusing on and, uh, and, and what you're finding? Yeah, sure. So maybe it's good to just tell you a little bit about my uh, research, the focus in the lab. So um, established this lab around eight years uh, now uh, at the American University of, of Beirut. And we started our research by focusing on uh, RNA viruses, the, uh, particularly uh, viruses of the respiratory tract. So the viruses that called, uh, cause flu and common cold, but also viruses of the gut. So the viruses that cause... Uh, diarrhea and, and vomiting. So uh, uh, these are two important viruses with substantial uh, burden uh, globally and, and, of course, in Lebanon. And by when the time I moved to Lebanon, it wasn't really well understood. So their epidemiology and uh, the way they, uh, the dynamics uh, in, in Lebanon and the region, they weren't quite well understood. So we focused on trying to understand their epidemiology, uh, parting with uh, uh, clinicians around uh, Lebanon, but particularly with uh, pediatric infectious disease specialist, uh, Rastan Baibu. So we, we started looking at their epidemiology 
which viruses are important, uh, which viruses mostly cause, for example, uh, respiratory illnesses and hospitalizations in children and the high-risk patients, and then which ones are important uh, causes of gastroenteritis. And we started looking at the way these viruses evolve. And this allows us to understand how they respond to vaccines, for example, when, when they're available or treatments, uh, but also to understand how they impact the size of the outbreaks and the burden of the disease. So as we now know, uh, with SARS-CoV-2, or, or as commonly known as COVID, uh, you know, whenever new variants emerge of these viruses, usually we see uh, worse uh, outcomes, more outbreaks, uh, bigger outbreaks. So this phenomena happens all the time with viruses. Um, it happened in the past with, with flu. It happens very often, almost every season or every other season. Uh, with the Aspartis syncytial virus, which is another very important virus, particularly in, in pediatrics, that causes uh, cold, common cold. It happens with uh, gastroenteric viruses like rotavirus and norovirus, which are among some of the uh, most prominent uh, gastroenteric viruses. So we've been studying how these viruses evolve and what are the type of uh, strains or variants that we have in, in Lebanon and in the uh, region. Sorry to interrupt. Sorry, sorry to interrupt. Yeah. When you say study how they evolve, you're talking about how the virus mutates, but also how it infects people and how uh, infections happen, passed on from person to person. No, so particularly we study their genetic makeup. So uh, we we get samples from uh, patients and then we uh, sequence them. Uh, and we uh, study how their, uh, you know, how mutations occur in these uh, viruses, and how these mutations could affect again their uh, response to vaccines when they're available, or for example, how they could affect uh, the spread of the virus. Right. So now with with SARS-CoV-2, the, these kind of phenomena became more widely understood. Uh, I mean, first it was surprising to people to hear about these phenomena and, and that we have to deal with variants all the time, but these are, as I said, phenomena that happens uh, very commonly. And in parallel, we were studying how viruses interact with the host. So to try to identify uh, potential targets for um, uh, developing antiviral therapies. So when, whenever there, the, the relationship between the host and the virus is very complicated. So the virus needs the host to, to, to cause its disease and continue to transmit. But but in doing that, it triggers also some antiviral responses. So it's a double-edged source. It, it utilizes the host to, to survive and replicate, but it also triggers this antiviral signal that, that allows the host to defend itself. So what we're trying to study is the intricacies of this relationship and whether we can utilize it to help the host defend itself better against these viruses. So, uh, uh, again, excuse me for interrupting. You're looking at how do you prevent people from getting infected, or how do you treat them once they are to infected? Treat to treat them. So we're, we're thinking more here about antivirals, which are usually used in principle when, when the host or the human being in this case gets infected with, with a pathogen or the virus, and then how, how to stop replication of the virus. So you could either target the virus itself, or you could trigger some host signals that enable the host to better defend itself against the virus and, and prevent it from continuing its replication. So where this is more on the basic side of, of things where, where it takes years and years of research to identify these targets and then develop molecules that could help you uh, uh, prevent virus replication. But we're not uh, dealing in a normal situation now. There's been a kind of accelerated crash course in 
trying to find these uh, antiviral treatments or uh, vaccines all around the world. Have you felt that as well? Have you accelerated or uh, refocused some of your research to try to uh, respond uh, particularly to COVID-19? Absolutely. I mean, the, the, when, whenever you have a pandemic like the COVID pandemic, um, you know, the urgency is much different. There are also uh, the, the policies around supporting research, um, develop vaccines and antivirals change. There are more funding available. Unfortunately, in a country like Lebanon, you don't see these opportunities much. So you need to try to, to work with, with external funders or external partners and so on. So what we did in the pandemic is try to more respond to the uh, health or public health urgency of the situation. So for instance, because my lab works on, on viral uh, detection of viruses, studying their epidemiology and the way they evolve, the first thing we did in the lab was to develop a diagnostic test for the virus before commercial tests became available because that took some time at the beginning of the pandemic. So we supported the clinical teams in identifying the, and screening the very early suspected case of of the uh, virus in, in the country. Uh, so I'm talking here really in early February, so when, when things weren't clear that this is going to evolve into a full uh, pandemic and spread across the world. So this is one thing we did. Uh, we also um, you know, optimized our work so that we can look at how the virus evolves. So we, we analyzed the um, viral sequences uh, that are available in the uh, Arab region, and we looked at how uh, these early variants could correlate with increased mortality or increased uh, disease severity, and we published that work. So, uh, so we tried to utilize as much as possible the tools that are available to us, but with, that would have direct public health and clinical impact at the time. And what's uh, what's the verdict? Are you pleased with what you've discovered? Have you uh, made any particular breakthroughs or discoveries that can uh, make people feel a bit more confident that uh, this issue might be under control one day? I think what, you know, rather than talking about discoveries here, it's more about the impact of the work that we did and, and how much we, we helped in terms of building resource capacities uh, to, to try to identify patients quickly. And, and uh, then, as you know, this was and still continues to be a very important uh, factor in controlling the pandemic, so trying to identify cases and then uh, isolating them to prevent further spread of the virus, but then also to, to manage them in a timely, timely manner. So while our research in the past was more kind of, uh, you know, studying the basic concepts of how viruses evolve and so on, in this pandemic, we were more on the front line trying to actually work closely with clinicians to, to optimize uh, these diagnostic tools. And then, for instance, uh, that allowed us to, to work with clinicians in trying to understand outbreaks in the hospital. So we, uh, one of the studies I'm, I'm really um, happy and, and proud about is a study that we did uh, in collaboration with our colleagues in the emergency care department uh, in the COVID unit. So at the time, there was an outbreak among the healthcare workers, and, and there were some modifications done to the way the air circulates in, in that facility. And we were asked to help them to assess the risk of exposure to of healthcare workers to the virus in that facility, given that a lot of patients infected with COVID. So we did it, we went in and we did air sampling. Uh, we took samples from around the facility. We, we collected air samples and we screened them for the virus. 
to see whether that new way of circulating air in the facility eliminates the risk of, of being exposed to COVID. And, and it turns out that the more air natural air you circulate into the COVID facility, uh, so fresh air from outside, the less the risk is for uh, you know uh, having the virus spread in the environment and then exposing the, your staff there. Because that was very critical to, to uh, maintain staff uh, throughout the pandemic and protect them. Okay, and uh, this is something that uh, has obviously, if you discovered it in your one uh, research project in one uh, hospital in Beirut, uh, this can immediately yeah. be shared with people all over the world too. And definitely, we, we did publish our findings, um, you know, so this could be accessible by anyone else. Um, and again, the, the most important part is that, that you could Im immediately impact policy and, and, you know, confirm that, you know, such an intervention helps in controlling the uh, risk of exposure to uh, SARS-CoV-2 in, in these kind of facilities. Mm -hmm. if, we, if we take a wider, wider angle view of the uh, COVID virus and the threats, um, can you say that you and your colleagues in the scientific community can now say pretty uh, with certainty that, for instance, that you cannot get infected with COVID if you just, you know, touch a surface where a COVID-infected person may have been sitting, say, at a lunch table, or, you know, uh, uh, if you touch an ATM machine that somebody used who had been infected. Do we know very precisely how the virus is transmitted, and therefore that helps us uh, implement preventive measures? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, unlike with the, uh, at the beginning of the pandemic, where, you know, there was a lot of focus on just wash your hands and avoid touching contaminated surfaces, the focus shifted to really trying to prevent respiratory transmission, which we now know and, and have confirmed, uh, been confirmed in multiple studies, that it's the main route of transmission. So I think it's, uh, you know, the, the contact crowd is probably the less prominent. Not that it doesn't play a role, but it's really mainly the, the respiratory route. Uh, so these droplets that are released from, from the mouth when, when somebody is talking or sneezing or coughing and then inhaled by another person are the key uh, route of transmission of, of the virus. Now, definitely, if, if a person touches a heavily contaminated surface and then touches their nose, so they can do direct inoculation of themselves, uh, then they could still get the virus. But, but we know now this is not a major route. And that's why we see when, when we uh, increase social distancing and then the, with, the, with, the, with the mask mandates, uh, we could see quite a strong impact on uh, SARS-CoV-2 transmission. But uh, amazingly, we've seen a, a huge impact on other respiratory viruses like influenza. Uh, which, yeah, the influenza virus uh, kind of almost uh, disappeared from around the world during the first two years of the pandemic uh, uh, with, with these restrictions and, and, you know, with the masking mandates and, and also the social distancing. Now we're starting to see influenza, um, you know, picking up again in, in, in several countries, but when the Omicron wave uh, came and then these restrictions, the COVID restrictions were reinforced, we saw again uh, a decline in flu activity. So while flu is still around, but, but we, we know now that these measures actually uh, help us also deal with the burden from other respiratory viruses like the flu and RSV. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, so, uh, given these different dimensions of the uh, issue, uh, where are you now putting your main emphasis in terms of your lab research, and, and what, is, what is the immediate uh, next horizon that you want to look at in terms of the research you do? So, uh, you know, since the beginning of the pandemic, we started focusing with, with colleagues at the uh, biomedical engineering to try to develop a, a new, uh, fast, rapid diagnostic tools for COVID. And the idea we knew, I mean, we couldn't really compete with, um, you know, big research centers or big far, uh, companies. But what we thought at the time that at least we started working and developing technologies that we could really quickly deploy and, and uh, uh, optimize uh, in responding to future outbreaks or future pandemics. So this is one uh, key area of focus. And then uh, we are continuing our work on studying the way that these viruses interact with the host and, and the crosstalk that happens and uh, how we can utilize these uh, uh, you know, targets in terms of uh, developing antiviral drugs. Mm -hmm. So we only have a few minutes left. I want to get back to the issue you mentioned at the very beginning, which is a really a, a big theme in uh, the work that people do in research at AUB and other uh, research universities, which is when you discover, uh, the you get the results of your research, then the question is, well, how does this help society? How does it help ordinary people? Um, and the question then I put to you is, do you, once you find something, whether it's a new diagnostic test or you find out about the importance of masking or whatever you discover, um, where do you then focus on helping society uh, become safer? Is it through government intervention? Is it through awareness in the media? Do you work through schools? How do you reach ordinary people in their homes? Where is the focus for you, the priority, in sh getting this knowledge into society so that society can protect itself? Absolutely. I mean, there are two types of research that we do. The one that would usually take many and many years to, to uh, come to fruition and then become something that's useful for the public. And that's usually the invisible part of things. And, and that's usually uh, takes a lot of hard work. But then there's also the part of work that we do that has impact, direct impact on the public. And, and uh, that is, for example, developing diagnostic tools or understanding how uh, viruses are evolving to respond to vaccines. And that could help shape the, the strategy of using these vaccines or optimizing these vaccines. So we usually work closely with, uh, you know, health organizations like the Ministry of Health, like the WHO World Health Organization. And I've worked closely in the past with the World Health Organization and, and helping them respond to outbreaks in, in Lebanon and the region, and also developing the public health and research strategy for research uh, for these uh, kind of respiratory viruses. And then we also do the direct communication with the public. And, you know, before COVID, that wasn't happening as, as it should be. But the COVID really, as I said, brought our research, our research and our work to light and people became more familiar with our expertise. So it gave us a chance to really just immediately and directly communicate uh, our findings and other scientists' findings uh, uh, to the public and, and uh, educate the public at how these findings could impact their lives uh, and how they can protect themselves from the, these viruses and how they can also contribute to uh, really protecting the society from the impact of these viruses. Mm -hmm. uh, when you say directly with the public, are you talking like through the AUB communications department, which makes some public service uh, announce ads and they put them on social media? Or are you talking about uh, 
going through the school system? How, how do you reach the public? Multiple channels, really. We utilize multiple channels. I mean, at AB, we set up a uh, COVID studio at the beginning of the pandemic in which we, we brought in many different, uh, different experts and, and we uh, discussed things uh, in a way that's really easily accessible and understandable by the public uh, through uh, you know, social channels of, of AB and uh, ABMC but also on our own personal social channels on, on Twitter, LinkedIn, and um, uh, Facebook. Uh, also by, um, you know, through, um, for example, uh, in, in my case, I had um, almost a weekly uh, video recording through An-Nahar, uh, a collaboration between AB and An-Nahar, in which we communicated the most recent findings on, on the uh, pandemic and, uh, you know, the uh, you know information about vaccine efficacy and how vaccines work and how diagnostics work and all of that and how the public can protect themselves and really presenting to them the the covid numbers in a way that they can understand and can relate to their uh, daily life and then how they can themselves impact the direction of the pandemic so it was really uh, you know uh, working through multiple channels uh, to to help because this was an unprecedented uh, you know event uh, it's, it usually goes into history as one of the worst, uh, you know, health uh, crises that we've lived through. And, and that's why the response was unprecedented and uh, uh, unusual. And, and uh, we've almost run out of time. One last question. How do you deal with individuals, and you find these all over the world, who say, I don't want to get vaccinated. I'm fine. I'll, you know, I'll take care of myself. How do you overcome that? I mean, really through open uh, communication and also understanding, understanding where, where they're coming from. So there are the people who just like have been exposed to misinformation and it's usually uh, easier to win them over by, by uh, helping, helping them understand the science uh, behind things in an easy way, uh, communicating with them the uh, true and actual uh, science. And then there are people who are... Uh, you know, more sophisticated and, and require more discussion of the science. You could also present them with, with the data uh, in the same sophisticated way. And there are the people who are just totally against science and they feel everything is conspiracy. And these are the hardest to win. But again, I think dialogue and, and really being open and, and persistent is, is what's most important. Mm-hmm. Wow. Well, unfortunately, we've run out of time. This is an amazingly important and fascinating field. And you're at the cutting edge of it uh, Dr. Zarakin, so thank you for being with us. Um, let me just repeat to the uh, audience that our guest has been Dr. Hassan Zarakit, who is the, an associate professor of virology and pathology and microbiology and uh, respiratory diseases and viruses and other things at the American University of Beirut's uh, Medical Center. Uh, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you so much, Rami. It's been a pleasure being with you. You bet. Keep up the good work, and I'm sure we will connect again uh, in the future. Will do. Thank you. And uh, that's our Professors at Work uh, episode for this week. I'm your host, Rami Khouri. Please join us again next week um, at the same time for another episode. Bye for now. <laughs>